FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I've got a lot to talk about, so let's get right to our panel. It's Wednesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Greg Bluestein, political reporter. Um, also, you see Greg on NBC's platforms. He does analysis uh, for MSNBC. And I guess, Greg, uh, you're on other NBC platforms as well at times, yeah? Yeah, I've got a five o'clock appearance today scheduled, but you never know because a lot of times those those appearances get canceled at the last minute. But yeah, I, I, it's fun what to it, kind of go on and talk about Georgia politics. Well, give us a preview. What do they want you to talk about today? Well, today's is going to be about uh, what we're going to discuss later on the show, which is the le- latest in the Fulton County's uh, ongoing probe into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election. We are going to talk about that right after I introduce the rest of the panel with you today. Emma Hurt is uh, with us as well, reporter for Axios Atlanta. Hi, Emma. You've got a couple stories on Axios Atlanta that we're going to get to today. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Bill. And Maya King, New York Times politics reporter, is back with us as well. Uh, Maya, uh, like some of your colleagues, you're starting to at least dip your toe and probably will be getting even more deeply involved in covering some presidential campaigns. Uh, You were up in Charleston covering Tim Scott, who's not announced yet. He's got an exploratory committee, but we'll talk a little bit about uh, your time with Tim Scott. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. Glad to be here. All right. So let's start, Greg, with the story that you just referenced. We've heard virtually nothing out of the Fulton County District Attorney's investigation of the uh, 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 Trump and his allies uh, for a long time now. Uh, but there was a motion filed in court yesterday that gave us some new insights that are relatively significant, I think it's safe to say, uh, Greg. Um, and what we learned is that we knew that Fonnie Willis had sent target letters to those who had been fake electors uh, for Donald Trump after the 2020 election. Um, But we learned from the motion yesterday that the DA's office has offered immunity to at least some of them. I don't know how many, and I'm not sure that we know uh, at all from the filing, but that at least one of the people who was offered immunity uh, has said that uh, a fellow elector did commit acts that are violations of Georgia law. So what does all this mean, Greg? Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. But yeah, that, that is one of the important developments that, that that some electors told prosecutors this month that another elector violated Georgia law. We don't know what that violation might be. Um, and we don't know what that could entail, if that could entail any more charges. But we do know that there is a rift among the Georgia GOP fake electors. Um, we also, you know, a part of that uh, explosive motion was also the district attorney um, saying that uh, some of those electors weren't told by their attorneys um, that they had offers of immunity in exchange for their cooperation. Um, and, the, you know, their attorneys have denied that. But uh, in this, again, in this extraordinary motion, uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis saying that that attorney should no longer represent those fake electors, the, those electors uh, anymore because of this. Um, it's believed to be that one of the fake electors does have an immunity deal in place. We're not sure who it is. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility that several other fake electors are seeking immunity deals because an indictment decision is so close. Um, so there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And that's just one one aspect of this very broad overall case still pending. So, Greg, let me ask you one more question. Um, we The split among the fake electors uh, is around the attorney Kimberly Debro, or uh, I, I think is mm-hmm. her, her name. Um, 
she quite a while ago we learned that um that that she was representing virtually all of the fake electors and um the district attorney's office w- w- was unhappy about that went to court and uh, asked judge mcburney who's overseeing the special gra- who was overseeing the special grand jury while it was meeting to separate out um some of those uh, fake electors who she represented, I think from David Schaefer, although we don't know yeah. that for certain, do we? Well, David Schaefer has a separate attorney. Um, uh, okay. So he he is definitely separated out. And that also led to speculation that, that Schaefer was going, was being particularly under scrutiny um, because of his role as being one of the architects of this fake elector plot. Yeah, Emma, that's exactly where I was headed, that if we've now got immunity for any number of these fake electors, Schaefer has his own separate lawyer. You do have to speculate about whether he's really the one who's under the gun here. And by the way, we should remind people Schaefer is the uh, chairman of the state Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so messy trying to cover this and explain this in a way that was... uh digestible is very difficult for all of us. But to your point, I mean, the DA tried to disqualify Kimberly and Holly Pearson, David Schaefer's lawyer, um, last fall. They they separated. Instead, the judge ruled they had to separate. And now they're coming back um, with this motion. But I will say in a statement, uh, Ms. Jabrow, or Jabrow, sorry, to Kimberly, we don't, we'll figure that out soon. Um, said that the interviews that were mentioned as the evidence that the DA is um, referencing interviews with electors in which they accused another of uh, committing a crime and said that they were not told of immunity deals. She says that those were recorded and that the court will therefore hear, quote, how they how the DA has misrepresented the facts. So it, it continues. And I will say in the bigger picture, it's just another instance of um, you know, lawyers have been trying to undercut each other at every turn for this two years long investigation. I mean, as we know, President Trump's attorneys have also tried to completely disqualify the DA herself from this whole investigation. She was separately disqualified from investigating Burt Jones specifically because of a political conflict. So it the merry-go-round continues. Yeah, Maya, meanwhile, uh, I think uh, uh, political observers are waiting for the other shoe to drop on the Fulton County investigation. When, uh, if ever, is Fannie Willis going to, in fact, charge any of the people that she's investigated uh, with any kind of criminal charges? I think that's the big question. I mean, it's it's unclear. My understanding is that could happen anywhere between um, the next few weeks to the next few months, but certainly sometime over the summer. Um, and I think the other big question here is who, uh, what names we'll see on that list of people who are indicted, who are charged. And I think, of course, the big name we're waiting to hear, of course, is former President Donald Trump, who almost certainly uh, will face charges in this case. And I think, you know, that the other question that I have as someone um, already steeped in campaigns coverage is what this means for the rest of the Republican primary field. And again, if it puts uh, his competitors um, in a really difficult position of having to weigh in on who is now the front runner um, and all of his drama that continues to unfold. Well, Maya, let me follow up with you on that. The the, uh, conventional wisdom about Trump's indictment in New York and potential indictment here, and who knows what DOJ is going to do, has frozen uh, the field for Republicans. Do you do you think that's a correct assessment? I think right now, yes, just because you have not seen a ton of uh, his opponents really come for the former president and say that he's wrong, other than maybe Arkansas's Asa Hutchinson, who was one of the first to say that this is a cause for the former president to drop out. But we know that that, of course, won't happen. What I've heard from a lot of people, though, is that the substance of these cases is very different. So with the Manhattan district attorney, you know, paying hush money payments to a porn star seems really frivolous and also provides his opponents with an opening to just go after the substance of the case, but not actually uh, the former president himself. Now, looking at Fulton County, this is a little bit more, you know, of a kind of cut and dried case because you will have most likely evidence 
um, that we all have heard now at this point of the former president and his associates trying to overturn the election. So there are the political implications and there are also the democratic implications here. And I think that is going to um, provide, it's going to force, I believe, a lot of his opponents to weigh in here in a way that probably makes them a little bit more uncomfortable, but may offer them an opening to say, you know, this is why you should think of me and not the former president. I'll uphold democratic principles. You know, Greg, uh, as, as I read the story, uh, the AJC story this morning, which was written by your colleagues Tamar Hallerman and Bill Rankin, who've been following the grand jury very closely, um, they reminded us that the state Republican Party last year spent more than $220,000 defending these fake electors in court. Um, also, uh, the story reminds us that Deborah's firm, law firm, had received $170,000 in legal fees in 2020. Um, the other attorney on the case, uh, Holly Pearson, had been paid at least $52,000. Um, the reason I bring that up, especially about the state GOP, is um, this is an interesting use of state party funds, it strikes me, uh, Greg. Yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> You know, and it's their funds, and so they, they get to use them how they want. It's not like it's not public tax to, taxpayer funds, but at the same time, um, yeah, that that's more than three hundred thousand dollars now has been spent from state party uh, funds to to defend David Schaefer and uh, and these these fake electors. And this is something that was a point of pride for David Schaefer uh, back in February when he announced he was not seeking another term as the the party's chairman. He said uh, he praised the party's executive committee for agreeing to cover the legal fees in his farewell dispatch. He said, I've raised the money to honor that commitment so that none of those electors have to had to pay a penny, penny out of pocket. So um, we, we've had this before with the state GOP. There is a a, a racial discrimination lawsuit several years ago against the then chairman. And a lot of that money too was spent on defending that lawsuit rather than going out and energizing voters, mobilizing, building apparatuses, running ads, all the other things that the, the, the state party also does, but they're having to shift more of their resources into this legal case. It does strike me, Maya, that uh, both the amount of money the state party has spent defending the fake electors um, and the fact that they are defending them is yet another reason why Governor Kemp has separated himself completely from the state party and is now setting up his own organizations uh, to raise money and to advance his political agenda. And I mean, it's proven to be a winning message, right? He said that we shouldn't relitigate the 2020 election, and that's a lot of what got him elected and um, curried some favor with independent voters who were really tired and frankly embarrassed by what was happening in Georgia uh, with the fake elector scheme. Though I will say it is a little bit difficult when you consider the fact that his lieutenant governor was also part of this. I know that they separated that he separated himself from that at this point, uh, Bert Jones, but he was involved. Um, and so that's, I think, worth pointing out as well. Yeah, before we leave that subject, Emma, let's remind our listeners why Burt Jones is no longer part of this case, why he is no longer a target as he once was. Um, his lawyers went to court quite a while back and argued that because Fonnie Willis had been a major part of a fundraiser for one of his, for his Democratic opponent, even though it, it, the at that point the uh, uh, candidate was in a primary campaign, not yet the general election opponent, uh, it was a conflict of interest for her to uh, go after uh, uh, Jones. McBurney said that's correct. He separated Burt Jones from the rest of this investigation. And now we wait to see, Emma, and I suspect we'll wait until after whatever indictments come out do come out, uh, whether the Prosecuting Attorney's Council will actually pick someone new to pursue charges against Burt Jones, who, of course, is now our lieutenant governor. Yes. And it, I mean, it was a big victory for Jones to get this uh, order from the judge last uh, summer, if my memory serves. Um, and as 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 you said, you know, Bonnie Willis did campaign for his opponent directly. Um, she used to work with Democrat Charlie Bailey. Um, and so she supported his candidacy there. But um, it's a it's a it's a ruling that allows Willis to question people about Jones and gather evidence, but not bring charges. 
as you said. And so um, once the prosecuting attorney counsel has said, once we get to indictment stage, then if they have to, they will appoint a special prosecutor to handle any charges for Jones specifically. Again, another example of how complicated and wide reaching this <laughs> yeah. investigation is. Um, two years, 75 witnesses, and now maybe two prosecutors. Yeah. Um, all right, Greg, let's move on to a related story. Um, you know, we were all waiting, I think, with a lot of anticipation for the trial, uh, the New York, uh, 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 the, the case that's now in a Delaware court, excuse me, uh, the Fox News Dominion defamation uh, trial in which uh, Dominion was suing for $1.6 billion uh, because of the way in which Fox News attacked Dominion's voting machines as being part of a conspiracy to deny the election to Donald Trump. And of course, uh, yesterday afternoon, around four o'clock or so, the judge in the case, after seating a jury, came into court and told the jurors, well, never mind, they've settled this case. We think it's one of the largest settlements in the in the history of, of American courts, uh, $786 plus million dollars. Um, but there was a, the, the reason I connected back to Fonnie Willis is there was some expectation that perhaps some of the testimony that would have uh, happened had the trial gone forward might give the DA here some further uh, evidence to work with as they consider what they're going to do here in Fulton County. Exactly. And we, and we saw um, we saw some of that in the incredible internal mm -hmm. documentation that Dominion gathered uh, that showed how so many Fox executives and personalities and all the way up to uh, Rupert Murdoch, the co -fa the founder of Fox News, uh, knew the election fraud lie was a lie and continued to perpetuate it. And Georgia was mentioned in some of these uh, these these emails and texts and, and different correspondence. Um, as these officials, as these Fox News executives, producers, uh, and others um, documented uh, clearly, you know, that they knew that this election fraud conspiracy was exactly a fantasy. Um, Maya, uh, I, I think it's interesting to take a look at the Fox News statement. Um, they, they Afterward, they said, well, yeah some of the things that we said were probably misrepresentations. But here's the line that struck a lot of people as incredibly absurd. Quote, this settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. We are hopeful that our decision to resolve this dispute with Dominion amicably instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial allows the country to move forward from these issues. I, I don't know how many people who are listening happen to see CNN, when Jake Tapper read the part of the statement, but in the middle of reading it, he broke down laughing and then apologized. So I don't know if that's gone viral, but it certainly uh, should, I think, Maya. Well, yeah, because the damage has been done. <laughs> they stoked so much tension and um, and really violence <laughs> in the wake of the uh, the presidential election and furthered. I mean, we know now um, that they were lying and that they knew that they were perpetuating a lie. And so I think part of the reason why the settlement came about was they did not want to further ruin their reputation. As these text messages started to come out around this lawsuit, um, you know, there were questions and real, um, I think, in a lot of newsrooms and among a lot of reporters of whether or not Fox News could still be considered a reputable news outlet now that we know that they were willingly uh, parroting lies. And so, you know, there's also the quote um, from one of the lawyers here, money is accountability. I think that's I think it's a start um, in this in this case. And, and as Fox tries to save face, one question that I have, too, is whether um, one of the stipulations I know that was held up before this settlement was that Fox News anchors would go on and, rec and recognize that they had lied and apologize um, repeatedly for these lies. I don't know if that will take place now, but I think that statement um, is sort of the the political equivalent of, of sort of walking away with your tail between your legs, realizing that you've had, that you've messed up and that you have to apologize for it. Emma? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us were probably shocked that it took this long to reach a settlement because of what has come out even ahead of a trial that is, um, 
as Maya alluded to, can, quite embarrassing for some of Fox's on-air talent and producers and, and executives. But I mean, I just think about the fact that regardless of this settlement, damage has really been done to Dominion's reputation, to the reputation of electronic voting systems across the country. And, um, you know, for, for some of the people in this country that still question the validity of a system that we know has been proven to be secure, um, this settlement is probably not going to change those minds. Yeah. And Greg, of course, it's not going to change for a minute the way in which I think Fox personalities like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram uh, behave on the air, the way in which they represent what their their version of the truth on the air moving forward. And I think there is some disappointment, um, of course, that First Amendment issues, um, freedom of the press, uh, libel, all of this was kind of hanging in the balance of how this trial would have uh, uh, made some uh, judgments for us. And uh, all of that goes by the wayside because what we eventually realize is that Dominion is acting as a corporation that wants as much compensation as it can get for having been, as they say, defamed. Yeah, look, money talks. The money rendered a, 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 a verdict of its own. But at the same time, the, the media trial of the century, an effort to um, reveal what could have been even more significant disclosures and exposed the network's biggest stars and its founder to intense grilling about why they promoted this election fraud, they've been spared of that, right? And so is the public. Um, and so it really could have been this momentous occasion to hear, to, to learn, to disclose even more than what we've already seen in these text messages and email chains and other discovery that's already been uh, revealed. But at the same time, this isn't over too, because Fox still has a significant amount of legal exposure, including a lawsuit from another election company, Smartmatic, that has a $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit pending. So Fox is not out of the legal woods yet. All right, let's do this. Um, let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, we still have a lot more I want to talk about with this great panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. New York Times politics reporter Maya King, Axios Atlanta's Emma Hurt, and Greg Bluestein from the AJC join me for today's uh, show. Emma, let me just jump to a topic uh, that uh, was one of the things I mentioned that you've written about for Axios Atlanta, which, by the way, people can subscribe to very easily. Tell everybody how. Axios.com slash Atlanta. How easy? Couldn't be better. Okay. Uh, one of the stories uh, you wrote about it, and it's particularly meaningful today uh, because it is conceivable that before the day is out, the United States Supreme Court may actually, as a body, weigh in on the decision in, in Texas to uh, deny FDA's approval of mifepristone, the first drug in the two-drug regimen to uh, end uh, a fetus's um, uh, existence. Um, the Supreme Court may weigh in on this entirely because Ju Justice Alito had put a stay on that ruling taking effect that ends today at midnight. Have I got that right so far, Emma? I think so. <laughs> okay. What you wrote about is the impact that Georgia's six week abortion ban, the so called heartbeat law, has had on abortions in the state of Georgia. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's been, um, gosh, nine months since the law went into effect July 20th after the Dobbs decision. And what we've seen in some of the earliest data coming from abortion providers from the Society of Family Planning 
is that uh, Georgia's monthly abortion rate has been cut in half in the six months. It was cut in half in the six months of, of 2022 when the law was in effect. Um, it was among the highest drops of states around the country, Texas being the first. Um, and so that what that looks like is a total of, in 2022, about 11,000 abortions that the estimates um, say, you know, that perhaps would have happened if not for the law in effect, dropping from about around 4,000 a month to 2,000 is um, the monthly breakdown. And we also saw a decrease, the largest decrease of any state in virtual visits as well um, for abortion care. So, I mean, what this shows, and in fact, the Georgia Life Alliance um, touted this data as saying that the law has worked and the law, as they say, has crushed the abortion industry in Georgia. Um, so we, um, you know, we all, it's, it's just strange after covering this for so many years to see those numbers really uh, in black and white after something that was very, um, you know, it was it was hypothetical, right? Until the law went into effect, and until we had this data, and here we are. So, uh, Maya, I, I've mentioned on the show uh, at least once that once the Supreme Court ruled on Dobbs and said it's up to states to decide what they want to do about abortion, my guess is that the justices all thought, "Thank goodness, this is out of our hands," and now let the states wrestle with this complicated issue. Well, it's come right back to them thanks to the ruling in Texas and the one, of course, in Washington state, which gave had just the opposite uh, 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 impact, saying that in the states that had sued to continue with Mifflin-Bristone, they should be allowed to do so. Right back in the Supreme Court, Maya. It is, and it's going to restart, I think, another um, long political conversation, especially for Democrats who have really tried to make this their number one issue again, heading into 2024, as they saw it was successful in 2022. Um, the Biden administration has gotten tangentially involved by at least weighing in on this and hoping um, that one of the federal judges, or that if this does go to the Supreme Court, um, that there's a way for them to still protect medical abortion, because we know that these this is medication that's not just used, for abortion, but also for treatment of ulcers. And then also for women who have um, miscarriages, this gives them even fewer options um, on that front. So again, turning on my campaign brain, this is just going to be another grounds for messaging, I think, um, particularly from, from the left. Yeah, well, that's right, because Greg, it, it, Democrats have an issue that they think can be very helpful to them in 2024, whereas Republicans right now are at a loss to quite understand what they do with the anti-abortion messaging, given that they understand that their constituents basically favor, at least uh, up to a certain point, choice. Yeah, this is why it's such a thorny problem for Republicans in, in, in Georgia in particular, because, um, and, and this is why you didn't see a big push this year during the legislative session, uh, to further restrict abortion because um, Governor Kemp and others could just point to the Supreme Court pending decision on Georgia's anti-abortion law. Um, but they know they're in a hard place right here because there are some in the party, some Republicans who want even further restrictions, who want to outlaw abortion entirely or or outlaw um, abortion pills or, or, or drugs like mifepristone, others. Um, and then others who they're trying to appeal to who uh, either completely oppose any sort of limits on abortion or who want, um, you know, roll back restrictions. And there's also the political reality that in Georgia in particular, not only do a significant number of voters say that abortion rights is, is, is a cherished value to them, but they don't have the numbers maybe to pass another new restriction if, if Georgia's anti-abortion law is thrown out. Remember, it passed with just one vote to spare in the House back in 2019 when Republicans had greater majorities in the state house, and it was a, you know, it, it was a tr very, very dramatic and and emotional uh, debate in the legislature that waged for months. Do Republicans want to revive that next year or in a special session if that abortion law is struck down in Georgia? You know, that's going to be a, the big question that Governor Kemp and others face. That's exactly what I was going to go to next, Emma. Is we're still waiting for the state supreme court to rule on a case brought before it. 
that would uh, ask the justices of our court to rule that the uh, uh, six-week abortion ban, the heartbeat law, is unconstitutional, illegal. Yeah, absolutely. We heard arguments last month on that case. Um, I would say the the justices seemed a bit skeptical of the argument that um, abortion rights advocates were making. But there are other if they lose this case, um, the abortion rights advocates say they'll keep bringing other challenges. There are other uh, legal claims that they think have standing. So it will continue even if the justices rule against them this time. Of course, if they rule in favor, then then it's over. <laughs> Greg, do you actually think that if the court uh, it, it concludes that this uh, law is in fact legal, and as Emma points out, there will be other cases brought on other grounds, but in the meantime, do you actually think there is a an energy among Republicans to have call a special session. Would Governor Kemp go along with that to do more with abortion? I I doubt it, but you know there's always a possibility. But but either way, the governor and and his and other Republicans have been able to kind of push off that debate, right? Push off any any sort of discussion on whether or not there should be more restrictions. Remember, it was obviously a big campaign issue in 2022, and and the governor was caught on a tape you know, when being asked about more abortion restrictions, kind of saying, yeah, you know, we'll look into that, right? Um, so he's been able to shove off that debate, that talk, because, hey, you can just point to the Supreme Court decision. Once the Supreme Court decides, the state Supreme Court decides on this abortion law, um, either way, Republicans can no longer use that court decision as an excuse, right? So they're going to have to answer to advocates on their side, you know, some of Governor Kemp's staunch supporters, the ones calling for new restrictions on abortion. We're certainly seeing this debate play out around the nation as the mail-in abort, as, as abortion pills like Mifepristone become the next frontier of this battle. Maya, um, as long as we're talking about abortion, especially post-Dobbs, I want to ask you to uh, talk a little bit about a piece that your New York Times columns <clears throat> colleagues Adam Nagorny and Jeremy Peters uh, published a couple of days ago. Um, and what, what the point of their story is that once um, uh, uh, a couple of issues played out, Dobbs most recently, but a, a, a while f- further back, the Supreme Court's decision that uh, same-sex marriage was legal and constitutional, suddenly conservatives had to start looking for new issues to take on. And um, they quote in the uh, opening of the article, uh, Terry Schilling, the president of America, the American Principles Project, which is a conservative advocacy group, who says, we knew we needed to find an issue that the candidates were comfortable talking about, talking about conservative candidates, and we threw everything at the wall. And what they came away with was, let's start talking about transgender identity, especially among young people. Um, it seems so calculated, and now we've seen the what's happened as a result of this kind of thinking. But talk a little bit about how suddenly transgender issues uh, became dominant now that Dobbs and gay marriage has been settled. Yeah, I mean... I think my colleagues laid out very well the ways that uh, folks like Schilling and others who sought to mobilize a conservative base looked for a group kind of to other. And it dovetailed um, the issue of trans rights with this movement that we're seeing among a lot of parents at school boards who are starting to become more concerned about what's happening with their children at school and the curriculums that they're learning. And now thrown into that, the possibility that your child might be competing against um, a trans individual. And it became, I mean, a huge flashpoint even in 2022. I think Emma and Greg and I all three saw this um, firsthand with the campaign of Herschel Walker. Um, One person that he campaigned with quite a bit was um, a swimmer who competed against um, a trans girl in high school and said that she felt it was unfair. And that she became sort of a conservative darling in many ways for speaking out against this. And so what this story really captures is the ways that movements can start. 
and even the ways that they can start if, by unfairly targeting um, folks and, and in this case, members of, of uh, trans communities. And I think that it's noteworthy that one reason why this movement has accelerated is a, a lot of misinformation about what this uh, specifically on gender affirming health care and what that actually looks like, particularly for minors. And that's in part because one, the number of people who are transgender in the US is already, I mean, we don't actually know exactly how many, but estimates are like, you know, 0.6%, quite low. And then the number of minors within that, one in five, maybe. So you have a really small group of people who perhaps if you're a transgender minor, you wouldn't want to come and testify before state legislators about your experience. Maybe you don't feel safe. Maybe you're just not ready because you're under 18 and things are complicated. So you have a movement with sort of um, talking about a group of people that don't often have advocates very easily accessible to testify in the same way we see with other issues like abortion, for example, you have tons of women who will talk about it. And then you also have misinformation about what this care is. And that's just because it's, I mean, my understanding is hormone therapy for minors wasn't used first until 2007. So this is just a new, this is new. And while major medical associations across the country agree that gender affirming care for minors is life-saving, the misinformation about what that care looks like for example, it's rarely surgery. It's almost never surgery for minors. That this this gap in our understanding of it, because if you don't know someone personally, you probably don't understand it. And for both Democrats and Republicans, it's been a steep learning curve. Greg, um, you know, it, it it as they point out, as Nagorni and Peters point out in the uh, piece, uh, this all started with what sounds like a kind of a simple issue. Should a transgender woman, for instance, be able to use a girl's bathroom in a high school setting or whatever? And of course, there was enormous debate over that. But then it um, it continued to develop uh, in, in other ways so that we had as recently as our legislative session just concluded uh, this uh, law, which uh, bans uh, transgender young people from uh, having any medical treatment which would advance their uh, transition right now. And, and it, it does strike me, Greg, that it starts out, there's something kind of cynical, at least about the way uh, the article portrays this uh, move toward dealing with transgender issues on the conservative side. It, it doesn't, it, there's no conversation about the human value around this, around, you know, how this affects young people from an emotional or mental state. It's all about what's an issue our people can grab onto. Yeah, and that takes us back to the debate just a few weeks ago here in Georgia over that legislation you just mentioned mm -hmm. where you had advocates in the hallways and you had lawmaker, Democratic lawmakers who are opponents of that measure saying that literally people will die um, because of its passage. And Georgia is a an interesting microcosm of this overall debate, because last year when Governor Kemp signed legislation that paved the way for high school administrators to, to ban transgender girls from competing in women's sports in high schools, uh, David Ralston, the late speaker, was a, was openly opposed to that legislation. He ended up he ended up going along with it, but he was very concerned about mental health uh, for these transgender girls. And, you know, but but also saw it as politically expedient, something that would help Governor Kemp beat back David Perdue, his primary challenger. And then on the campaign trail last year, you didn't hear Governor Kemp go out of his way and talk about it. He, he didn't shy away from it. But it was not his main campaign message where you could accurately say that for Herschel Walker, it was one of his main campaign messages mm -hmm. long after the primary. It, even into the runoff where you, you'd imagine voters would be more interested in ec the economy, inflation, broader-based issues. He was out there leading his message in some ways with you know, how he wanted to pass federal legislation to ban transgender girls from competing in sports. It it, it just showed you the, a big split within the Republican Party over not, not necessarily where they stand on the issue, but how they promote that issue. Okay, um, Greg Bluestein gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. we got to get our final break of the show out of the way. Oh, by the way, I didn't. Natalie Mendenhall reminded me before the show, tell people we are in a pledge period here at uh, GPB Radio. But you know what? 
We're doing our full show because the people at GPB understand how much this show means to you, which makes me very grateful, by the way. Um, so um, what we're going to do is throw you to a very brief pledge break because we really do need your support to continue with the kind of programming that you regularly listen to here. But guess what? We'll be back in like a minute. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little bit about presidential uh, politics in our final segment of the show today. We can start, Greg, very simply with saying that last weekend, uh, Governor Kemp finally completely broke ranks with Donald Trump. Uh, Clearly, the two were not best friends. Trump's attacked uh, Kemp ever since he refused to cooperate in the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. But Kemp has kept his powder dry. Not last weekend, as you point out, Kemp finally said, we have got to stop looking in the rearview mirror. To the best of my knowledge, he never mentioned Trump by name. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. But he did give a speech to uh, high-profile and significant Republican leaders and donors saying, stop relitigating 2020. Let's look to the future. And then he went on CNN, not exactly the kind of territory you normally expect to see Kemp, and gave the same uh, message, right? Yeah, he had been asked to go on CNN for I think months, and he and he and he, and he made that decision to go this weekend. And it's interesting to the different audiences. He talked to CNN. He and when he was giving this initial address on Saturday, it was in Nashville to the Republican National Committee's top donors just a few hours before Donald Trump himself was to address the group. Um, so he wasn't shying away. It wasn't like he was giving it to some a friendly audience per se. It was to uh, you know sort of the hotbed of. Of, of the GOP power. And one of the quotes was this, quote, not a single swing voter in a single swing state will vote for our nominee if they choose to talk about the 2020 election being stolen. You know, he, he, th- this sort of echoes his his campaign strategy all last year, which was talking about the economy, public safety, other issues he thought voters were more interested in than the 2020 election. Um, but at the same time, last year, when he was asked about Trump, he would say, hey, I'm not going to say a single bad word about him. I'm going to focus on my, my race. Now that his race is is done and dusted, now that he's won a second term, he's freer now to to promote his vision for where Republicans should go. I'll also just add, I mean, we, there was a we've seen this trend coming, but there was a morning consult poll this morning that showed him with a 60 percent approval rating. So. I think in 2020, it was like 37%, correct me if I'm wrong. So that also is an indicator of why he feels free to to speak like this. Um, so, uh, Maya, that leaves us uh, an opportunity to talk about what's happening out there in the Republican presidential contest. Obviously, Kemp is not prepared to back anybody at this point, but we're starting to see uh, other candidates, aside from Donald Trump, uh, moving toward uh, running on uh, Nikki Haley already in uh, the race, Asa uh, Hutchinson uh, in uh, the race. Um, but now we come to Tim Scott, who's announced an exploratory committee. Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, you were with him up in Charleston recently and got a chance to see him, number one, in kind of a retail politics uh, setting. He was at a place called Alex's, I think, uh, uh, shaking hands with folks and then with a group of Republican donors. And you talk about the fact that his message is mostly positive, Bible-backed. It's an homage, an homage to America's future. And you wonder how that's going to play in this cycle. Yes, Senator Scott, um, well, a few things. He spent a lot of time in Iowa and New Hampshire and, of course, um, his home state, of South Carolina, which anybody does when they're toying with a run for president. 
And one thing that he used to announce this exploratory committee, which effectively just gives him more of a runway to raise money and increase his name recognition before formally declaring um, his presidential run, he released a video that was about three minutes long and sort of this introduction to a national audience. And um, for folks who might not be very familiar with Tim Scott, the one thing that you hear from him a lot is, um, one, that he is extremely you know, religious, that uh, he would pledge, he said in the video, to protect Judeo-Christian principles. That was the first thing that he said he would do as president. Um, and second, that you know he's just extremely positive against the backdrop of a Republican Party right now that just seems very um, pessimistic with the indictment of former President Trump and a number of the statements that he made even that same weekend, um, he has sort of run this laundry list of grievances against a number of his political opponents. Opponents, In comes Tim Scott saying America's best days are in front of her. America is still a great nation. And he's in the unique position as the only Black Republican in the Senate. And so has often been called on to weigh in on issues of race. And the one thing that you hear him say quite a bit is, look, America is not a racist nation. Um, the founding fathers should not be eschewed as racists. And um, America is the only country where someone like him would be able to advance from relatively humble beginnings now to a United States senator and possible presidential contender. So I spent the weekend with him uh, in his hometown of Charleston to understand how that message plays. And it's hard because in Charleston, where he's from, everybody does really seem to like him. And he's got the double threat, too, of um, having to compete for in-state recognition, in-state support, and, of course, in-state donor support uh, with former Governor Nikki Haley and former U.N. ambassador under Trump, who up until this point, I mean, it really does seem very well liked um, among the political class in the state. Now, whether all of this translates to a national audience for either one of them is a huge question, especially when atop the ticket, you still have the former president um, in a top slot. And then, of course, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida still uh, jostling for for second place behind him. Um, but I think the bet, especially from Senator Scott, is that those two might cancel each other out that American voters might tire of that argument, that back and forth between the two of them, look for a more positive solution, and he'll be standing in the gap waiting for them. So, Greg, uh, one of the things that Maya points out in the uh, piece that she wrote about her uh, visit to Charleston is um, that uh, Tim Scott, in his uh, uh, exploratory tour, has been playing to a lot of evangelical audiences. And as she points out, he talks about his the Judeo-Christian ethics that he believes so firmly in. Um, and the question is whether that evangelical base, which um, was so invested in Donald Trump and to some extent may still be, is ready to move on from uh, Trump completely. Some are starting to sway a bit, but the question is whether the majority are going to stick with him. And then the question, too, is as a black Republican, can he pull black voters away from the Democratic Party to vote in a Republican starting in the primary itself uh, as he would begin a campaign effort? Yeah, the first part is interesting because we, we talked a lot about this dyna dynamic in 2016 when you had evangelical Christians rally behind Donald Trump, even though he was a thrice married billionaire from New York who, you know, lived a, a very different type of lifestyle than a lot of they, they followed. But look, at the same time, they could point to his promises to appoint conservative ju uh, judges and, and back uh, policies that were friendly to Christian conservatives. And, you know, all these years later, he can point at those three Supreme Court justices and his anti-abortion policies. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. In terms of attracting African-American Republicans, we know we've seen this in Georgia with with you know uh, uh, Republican candidates saying that they can break the double digit mark. Nathan Deal uh, hovered around there. Johnny Isaacson hovered around there, um, <clears throat> and it could be a game changer if you have a, a Republican who who can uh, draw in significant numbers of, of black voters. But we still haven't seen that on the national level uh, at any level. Emma. <laughs> I, you know, I'm just struck and I would love to hear uh, Maya and Greg, I know you've been in South Carolina and you have family ties to South Carolina too, how uh, our neighbors are feeling about their dueling uh, presidential candidates. I mean, Nikki Haley appointed Tim Scott to his Senate seat. The irony is pretty 
wild. You mentioned fears that they'll cancel each other out, maybe. Do you think that's really a dynamic? Maya? I think it's possible, absolutely. And it's created all these kind of awkward engagements, especially among the political and consultant class, because people have had to take sides at this point. There's no more giving to both Nikki and Tim, though that did happen in the past. Now that Tim Scott is considering really a republic or a, a presidential run with Haley already in, the folks who have already committed to Haley are there. And some of the folks who did actually, there's one donor who has talked about how he worked with Nikki Haley, went to high school with her, and also chaired one of her um her committees, who now is giving to Tim Scott and is on his team. And but and but also like when they talk to reporters about this, they say, you know, I called Nikki and I told her that I was doing this and they just have to be OK with it. So it's this kind of awkward uh, jostling right now. And we don't we truly don't know if they will be if they will be a factor nationally yet. So right now it's just kind of awkward in, in South Carolina. <laughs> and of course, the bigger question, uh, Greg, that is really fascinating. But the larger question is, is, is there anybody who can actually challenge Donald Trump who continues to soar in all of the polling far above anybody, uh, including Ron DeSantis, who is about as close uh, a rival as there is, but he lo- he's behind him by uh, double digits. So, you know, that's the question that all these Republicans that want to jump in have to answer. Yeah, look no further than the UGA poll out just a couple of days ago in Georgia, the home of some of Donald Trump's most humiliating setbacks. He's still up 20 points over Ron DeSantis. It's very early, but uh, he's he's the presumptive frontrunner. All right. Um, that is it for today's edition of Political Rewind. Emma Hurt, Maya King, Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for joining me. What a great conversation. I appreciate your participation in it today. Um, And again, we're in a pledge period here at GPB Radio. I hope you remember as you think about whether you want to uh, help us that we get all of our funding from you, the listener. Um, You're the ones who support uh, Political Rewind, All Things Considered, Morning Edition uh, here. And, And so we really do need you. And if you're already a contributor, thank you for your help. We're back with a brand new show again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye-bye.